Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Amber Liu and Michelle Shi from Plug and Play Ventures. Plug and Play is a new kind of accelerator option. So they have two major buckets. One is a venture arm, and just like other venture firms, they deploy capital in promising startups. And the other bucket is their innovation platform. So unlike other accelerators and incubators, they do not take any equity. There's no fees, no strings attached. Instead, they work with hundreds of corporate partners that sponsor them every year for first dibs access to some of these promising startups. And as a founder, this is super interesting because not only are you entitled to raising funds, building product, but you need customers. And Plug and Play connects you to these company-defining relationships, right? These big corporates that become your first pilot, your first big contracts. And so in the episode, Amber, Michelle, and I will discuss how exactly the Plug and Play model works, both on the venture side and the innovation platform side. Some of the recent startups they became acquainted with and ultimately invested in. And lastly, each of their requests for startups. Y'all, this was such a fascinating episode. I learned so much from Amber and Michelle, bunch of different topics, trends, experiments that I've never heard of before, even some counterintuitive ideas that buck common narratives. I really think y'all will appreciate this conversation with Amber Liu and Michelle Shi of Plug and Play Ventures. Amber and Michelle, welcome to the show. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for having Peter. us. All right, y'all. So let's start with the basics. I first became acquainted with Plug and Play through a mutual friend, actually a portfolio company of yours. But for the listeners, let's provide some context. What is Plug and Play? Yeah, of course. So Plug and Play, we are an early stage investor. So we usually invest in pre-seed, seed, and series A startups. As a company, we're really active and we do around 200 to 250 investments per year across our different verticals. I personally focus on sustainability, but we also have, I think, 16 to 17 verticals that we focus on, including brand and retail, energy, and so on. And besides investing, we also facilitate introductions between startups and our network of hundreds of corporate partners. And we also run accelerator programs that are focused on specific industry areas. So currently in sustainability, we run one in partnership with the Lions Den Plastic Waste on plastics reduction innovations. And we're going to launch one in the carbon space as well in the coming months. Yeah, and maybe to add on to that, so some of our track record on the investment side includes Dropbox, PayPal, Lending Club, Honey. We have 13 unicorns in our portfolio. Last year alone, we hit five unicorns. So it was a very successful year for us. Where Amber focuses on the sustainability side, I sit on our food sector. So we work with corporates, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, Mondelez, Hershey's, and we, we help them with open innovation. Wow. First of all, hat tip to to you and the team for an incredible year. The portfolio is like pretty pretty badass too. I want to dig into the plug and play model before we get into the fun stuff around trends and startups you're excited about. The thing that 
intrigued me when I first came across plug and play is the model is somewhat distinct from some of the other mainstream financing and accelerator options for startups like Y Combinator, Techstars, et cetera. I guess, again, for the casual listener, what is the kind of core business model for, for plug and play and how is it different from YC, Techstars, the main mainstream options that some founders consider? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Maybe I can kick this question off. First of all, like Amber said, we have two distinct arms of business. The first is where we make investments in early stage companies. The second is what we call our open innovation platform. So on this side of the business, we work with over 400 corporate partners, each of them with their own innovation initiatives across multiple different industries. For each of those verticals that we describe each industry sector, so for example, in the food vertical, we run two programs per year per location. These programs in and of itself are unlike any other program. We don't necessarily fit into an accelerator mold in the sense that we uh, work solely with early stage companies and we help maybe develop the, the, the product or the business model. What we do is we focus on business development. So we work with these very large corporations. We know their interest areas, their pain points. And what we can do is we can help startups develop their strategic partnerships with our network. And that's the core focus of these programs. It's not equity based, um, no fees. So it's completely free for startups. It's sponsored by our corporate partners. And it's in general, a very flexible program. So we don't require relocation. And all of these startups that are in our ecosystem are open for uh, applying to the programs. Wow. Just to, to highlight that, because I, I would consider myself to be somewhat well-informed around opportunities for founders. But when I first heard of this, it really is quite disruptive. Like anyone that's a maybe more concerned or risk averse around allocating equity to new partners or wants to be more possessive, but even more specifically, like helping founders nail their first customers is huge. Like that is the lifeblood exactly. of a company. So I just wanted to, to highlight that one more time because it really is a, di- a, a very distinct and competitive feature of, of plug and play versus some of the other options that are available. Yeah, 100%. And and that's what we saw was missing from the industry is having this connection between startups and this corporate realm. Um, sometimes it's very difficult to find the right contact within the organization. A lot of these enterprises are basically in, impenetrable to newer opportunities. But the corporate partners that we work with are so dedicated to keeping up with the times, finding new technologies and ways to innovate internally. And so they've been really great with meeting startups, finding the right opportunities. And that's something that we stand by as well. For our portfolio companies and our ecosystem companies, we want to provide more value to to them that they can't find anywhere else. So for the portfolio side, we provide more value than just capital. I think anyone can simply write a check of course, given the financial means, but not everyone can create an ex- ecosystem where you can find the right strategic partnerships and people and reach within the industry. Wow. So we have a, a pretty big, I, I like to call it aspiring founder listener base. A lot of people who are manager level up at other companies and are 
exploring jump into the space, either just like shifting jobs or starting a venture of their own. So if we double click into both of your focuses, right? Sustainability, food, Bev, agriculture. Can y'all paint a picture around some of the corporate partners y'all work with that become pretty incredible enabling opportunities for some of the startups that would consider the plug and play innovation stack? Yeah, of course. So on the on the sustainability side, our biggest partner is the Alliance on Plastic Waste. And what that is, is that's a network member consortium of over 50 member companies that range across the energy, plastics and manufacturing industries who have come together to commit to end plastic waste. So they really focus on innovative and impactful solutions. A few examples here are they started a global cleanup campaign with a startup called Literati that actually engages with consumers to help in their communities to incentivize consumers to pick up litter. In addition, they've also done other case studies. Another one that's notable is with Bifusion, which is a, a startup that works on building blocks that are made out of recycled plastics. So really upcycling and enabling that circular economy. So yeah, they really they really do want to support and really kick off these innovations. And they really do have, they have all these companies and also a lot of capital to really help assist that. And maybe from the food side, we work with companies and corporates across the entire food value chain. So it can really start from infield technologies, looking at ag tech solutions, different types of harvesting, seed modifications, everything from infield all the way throughout the supply chain. So it can be animal health in the livestock sector. It can be innovative ingredients like a cellular agriculture or plant-based proteins to the end consumer, essentially. So everything that the food supply chain connects. So we have a, a, vi- a wide variety of interest areas and the corporates that go along with that. So we'll work with folks like Tyson Foods in the livestock sector. We have large CPG brands like Red Bull, Hershey's, and they're all looking for unique solutions within their organization. And so what we can provide and what our corporates are seeking are basically unique solutions, tech platforms that can really help innovate internally. I think the, the distinct differences between a corporate and a startup is a corporate is really a very large traditional business. It's really hard for them to move quickly within the innovation landscape. For them, it's a margins game. And so everything's at a very high scale. It needs to produce the right margins, the right speed, which is usually pretty slow. And the startup, on the other hand, can move really, really quickly because it's a small, agile team. They know what's happening in the landscape and they can pivot really quickly. And so when these two sides come together, it can really become a great partnership with all parties involved, where startups can get great business development opportunities. Corporates can outsource innovation and work with the right companies to fit their pain points and needs. That's incredible. Yeah, I, I don't want to... So obviously, we got connected through through Daniel, who runs a, a health tech company in, in your portfolio. And I, I obviously don't want to name names, but he has spoken very fondly about the plug and play ecosystem. I mean, like he's been able to get introduced to land pilots and finally manifest those into legitimate contracts with 
these are big time, big time customers. So anyone listening that either has this like grandiose idea, moonshot idea, or even goes onto the plug and play website and and explore some of the theses that y'all are investing in, I, I can't recommend this option highly enough. But let, let's segue to, to some of the fun stuff. Now that we've established some context how plug and play works, uh, I want to help the, the listeners understand some of the trends and theses that y'all are excited about. Before we get into concrete examples of companies, let's start at the highest level. So in both of your buckets of, of expertise and focus, what are several macro trends that you're bullish on? We'll start there and then we'll segue to trends that you find to be overhyped. Amber and Michelle, one, one of y'all want to kick off macro trends that you're really bullish on within your particular area of focus. Yeah, sure. I can, I can kick this off. In terms of what I'm really interested in, I think first, I think there's there's a lot to be done, I think, in the in the recycling and waste system. So I think currently our existing infrastructure and the economics of recycling and our waste system, that's broken. So there's a lot of incentive problems with recycling. As a consumer, even myself, I think it's difficult to really be incentivized to recycle and to even know, I think, what can be recycled at certain areas. I know that what you can recycle can differ depending on what region of the U.S. or even the world that you live in. So it's really confusing for consumers. I think one opportunity here is really engaging consumers more in the process of recycling. So one company that we came across recently was called Olin's, and they actually operate a reverse recycling machine where they gamify the recycling process. So essentially, the consumer brings a beverage container to the to the machine, and then it returns you with rewards after you after you deposit the bottle. And it also educates you with what you so what you can recycle. So if it's if the thing that you put in the machine is not recyclable, then it'll actually automatically reject it. So it's actually educational and also provides incentives to recycle. I think another area that is really promising in this is infrastructure. So currently waste, waste sorting can be really manual. So that makes it costly and inefficient. And one company actually that we recently invested in called Grey Parrot, they actually use AI and computer vision to automatically and through AI sort the the waste. So essentially it identifies what can be recycled, what cannot. And even in the recyclables, they can actually calculate or kind of sense the percentage of virgin material in that recyclable material. So it really automates the entire process. I think that can be a huge game changer in terms of the infrastructure aspect. And I think another thing here that's interesting is transparency. I think when, when all these companies are in their operations, their supply chain can be confusing to consumers. And I think what is really promising here is making that more transparent to consumers. So utilizing like perhaps blockchain and connected packaging technologies to really make that process a bit more 
clear to consumers. I think one thing that's interesting here is this idea of extended producer responsibility. So currently, when we get a bottle, it's really up to consumers, at least in the U.S., to dispose of that, to recycle that. But EPR, extended producer responsibility, is shifting the waste burden from consumers to producers so that it's really up to the producer what happens to that ultimate um, used, perhaps, water bottle. So if it's ending up in as litter in the environment, that's really um, up to the producer. And actually, they can often be fined with under EPR regulations. So currently, EPR is more developed in Europe, but I think there is a lot of potential for that to expand into the U.S. That's super interesting. I Actually, before we, we piggyback to you, Michelle, on this last front around shifting the burden of responsibility, if we look into uh, a specific example, let's say bottling companies, right, like a Pepsi or a Coca-Cola, that's producing just a, a massive percentage of, of total bottle output. What do you think this does to either curb the production of, of plastics? Does this type of, of policy change the problem at all? Yes, I, I understand maybe if they were fined, they have to pay for, for pickups or something of that nature. But if, if customers still demand the product and it's still being produced. What is the the net impact of a policy of this nature? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think as as these policies are rolled out, I think that changes incentives. So, for example, let's say that a company is being fined a lot because their bottles are ending up in the environment. I think that really incentivizes the company and like that corporation to redesign their packaging so that perhaps it's more biodegradable, it's more recyclable, so that it's actually easier. And even if it ends up in the environment as litter, it's not as as impactful, as bad for the environment as the original packaging. So I think what's really promising there is it'll actually incentivize companies to completely redesign their products um, and incorporate more post-consumer recyclable material or um, even make their products, their packaging uh, more biodegradable um, or even, I think, change the infrastructure. So perhaps they can create bottles that are reusable and then just incentivize consumers to return those to their deposit facilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like one random idea I've been pitched is a reincarnation of of Loop's ecosystem. Now, you know, have you if you guys are familiar with TerraCycle's Loop subsidiary, it's pretty interesting. Like they they look at all these big brands like Hagen Dazs and Minute Maid, and they worked with these big companies and CPGs to create reusable alternatives. Really nice packaging. When you're done with it, the courier comes and picks it up, or you can drop it off at a pickup station at some physical retail. And interesting ideas. Can you do that with the world of of sodas and performance drinks? If you were walking into a Rite Aid and there was just like almost effectively like a vending machine, right? The things that you see at movies where you can choose your drink and just refill your drink. Do you all think that we'll see a future? something like that, like the little movie drink things that you click the the Diet Coke you want and it gets poured out. Will there be something like that where you can go to convenience stores and just bring a reusable bottle and pick the soda or Gatorade that you want? 
Yeah, I I can definitely see something like that. I we've actually already seen startups actually that are working on that. So this this startup that we came across recently, they actually do facilitate this entire infrastructure of enabling those or creating those reusable bottles and then creating that system. So essentially once you turn in that reusable bottle, you get this tag. So this chip that essentially means you can trade that again once you come back for a new reusable bottle. So we've already seen some traction in this space and I think that could potentially be the future of how we engage with packaging. Wow. Thank you for that, Amber. Michelle, feel free to comment on that. And if not, I'd love to hear trends that you're really excited about in the broader ecosystem of of food and ag. Yeah, definitely. I think um, one thing that I just wanted to point out is the power is really with the end consumer. The ones that are pushing for these trends are really the end consumers that can eventually influence the course that these corporates are going to go towards. So this corporate social responsibility I feel like it has been a response to a lot of the things that our cor- the end consumer has been advocating for. So advocating with their dollar, they want to back corporates that really have more influence and responsibility in the world around them. So exactly what Amber was saying with plastic supply chain or value chain, creating a more circular economy, that's something that's really important for all of our partners. I think especially in the food and beverage space uh, where a lot of these soda providers or snack companies can contribute to a lot of this kind of individual packaging. And it's of course really harmful for the environment. So Mm -hmm. I think our partners definitely echo everything that Amber said, but I guess on the other front, uh, a lot of our trends or I guess recognized needs within the industry revolve around food security. So it can be ingredient innovation, so alternative proteins, cellular agriculture, it could be the food supply chain, so traceability and transparency across the farm to fork journey. It could be extending shelf life from all the way from the the harvesting point or even the seed genetics. There can be CRISPR-Cas9 technologies like One of our portfolio companies is working on agribody that can actually modify um, a single kind of nucleotide within its DNA in order for it to not ripen faster. So it can actually extend the shelf life of those plants. It can increase the resistance it has to the environment. So even solutions like that, we look at all the way to the end consumer. What are the, the consumers looking for? What are the, the future trends in the market? So we have a lot of focus areas across the entire value chain. I would say the one that has been the biggest quote unquote hype in the food industry would be surrounding ingredient innovation. Of course, we saw the IPO Beyond Meat. We saw a few large rounds of fundraising for Impossible Foods, Oatly, A lot of these really large companies have been taking the world by storm, I think, with not only their sustainability initiatives, but products standing alone as themselves as good products that the consumers want to choose, not even from a sustainability (laughs) standpoint. So we see a lot of trends within this space, new proteins. We invest in a company called Bond Pet Foods that has created a fermentation method to create real animal proteins. Of course, there are a lot of companies working in cellular agriculture. This is where the industry is heading. One of the biggest concerns is how do we feed the world's population by 2050? 
And this is how we are going to do it. We need more productivity in the field. We need less environmental degradation in the field. We need new ways to produce animal proteins in lab forms. We need to revamp our food supply chain and not have as much food waste. 30% of food is all wasted across that supply chain, whether it be from solutions like Imperfect Foods is working on, so over-harvesting or fruits that don't have that same kind of photo readiness that consumers are looking for, all the way to upcycling waste streams to produce new product offerings or new ingredients that can be used to tracing that supply chain and making sure it's optimized and efficient as possible. So there are a lot of sectors Mm -hmm. that we look at. I know that something that you mentioned was like, what is an overhyped trend? That is an interesting question because I don't think there are any trends that can really be overhyped. There might be trends where those specific areas are very saturated by a lot of startups or different solutions within the space. But that's also something that's really good because we work with so many different corporate partners. Sometimes some solutions might fit one corporate partner better than another corporate partner and another startup or solution might fit that corporate partner better. So I would say there's Mm -hmm. never an overhyped trend. I think there are spaces that are very saturated But that's also a good thing in regards to the types of solutions that corporates are looking for at this stage of companies. And so I I wouldn't say that there are overhyped trends. They're just Mm -hmm. saturated spaces that have been around for quite some time. That's a great point. And and great, super interesting thread on some of the trends you're excited about as well. Uh, Question for both of you that's tangential to this is around materials innovation. I don't know if it was 10 years ago, nine years ago with, I think, Sunchips, where they tried doing that quote-unquote sustainable bag, but it got quickly shelved because customers said it was too loud. But I know there's a ton of really interesting food companies, I think primarily in snacks, that are trying to be super ethical in how they source ingredients, transparent around the supply chains, but the packaging itself feels like the trickiest challenge. So I'm curious, have you all stumbled upon any companies that are doing interesting work in food packaging, materials innovation or packaging innovation? That's that's a really great question. I think it's actually a really interesting topic. The, the situation that occurs when we speak about food packaging and food waste, the fact that we've seen correlations where with more food packaging, there tends to be less food waste. So that could be across the entire food supply chain. It could be even customers demanding for more kind of individual portion-sized packages, which inherently would use more packaging materials, but would produce less food waste. I think that's probably a conversation in and of itself. And that's something that I sometimes just think about because it's, it's such an interesting topic to dwell on. But of course, there are a lot of startups in this space. It could be antimicrobial packaging. It could be biodegradable packaging. But at the end of the day, it's basically packagings that have a unique kind of polymer or unique kind of formulation to it that still keeps the functionality of the packaging itself. Because the main thing that packaging does for food is it 
protects it from its environment. It has to preserve uh, the food inside of it. And so that's a really tricky, tricky process to replicate in a sort of biodegradable form. It needs to have the right respiratory rate. It needs to have the right moisture barrier. And so it's actually a very tricky area to innovate in. But there are startups definitely tackling them in the space. And maybe Amber can, can add more. She definitely knows more in this space. Yeah, no, I think, Ms. Michelle, you said it really well. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, we had, we had Not Pla on the show several months back. And that's that's promising. Seaweed based. The the caveat is the the shelf life on seaweed based packaging, at, at least as it stands now, is a few days. It may be if you pasteurize it, you up it to to thirty days. But if you're trying to outside of beverages and sauces, man, I just, I would love to see some type of commercialized solution for the most prominent snack type, the chip bags, the snack bar wrappers. I, I, I saw one, so we pals with the, the founder of Impact Snacks, Corey, and they use, I think it's a plant-based wrapper for their snack bars. Like they had they had this one TikTok go viral because it was him and his in the co- and his co-founder Nick eating the entire bar, like wrapper and <laughs> wrapper as well <laughs> as a test wow. of hey, this is this is really neat. I don't know. It would be cool to see, at minimum, plant-based chip bags as well and things that are like the most frequent snack consumables. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a really interesting space. Basically, plant-based materials are, are inherently everything that plastic isn't. It's porous. It has a lot of properties that allow it to degrade, of course, being it's a natural material. And so it's it's interesting to see how a lot of these companies are trying to create it into something it's not in some senses, where it needs to be no barrier or no respiration with the outside environment. And sometimes corporates don't want it to biodegrade, or if it does, it needs to be within a certain time period. So there are a lot of nuances in terms of the type of innovation. And so... Even with the moisture barrier and the oxygen barrier, I think those are still things that are are being developed right now. Yeah. And to echo upon that, yeah, like in terms of our sustainability efforts, we've done an analysis of over 500 startups across the world that work in plastics. And we've seen the most in the biomaterials world. So there's really a lot of innovation in this space. But like Michelle said, I think what's really important here is to consider like the time frame and what environment those materials degrade in. Some materials only degrade in specific very high temperature environments, and they actually don't degrade in the short term. And as a result, you see a lot of biodegradable materials still ending up in the ocean alongside the traditional plastics. So that's something I think that um, we should also really heavily consider when thinking about like biodegradable materials, that there's still a lot of nuances within that space. Interesting. Wow. So two interesting nuggets that I that I've learned so far. That one and then Michelle, when you're talking about the like more packaging could actually be a better thing for minimizing food waste. Like two like non-intuitive or kind of nuances that don't seem to be part of the casual narrative. So I appreciate both of you 
highlighting those caveats. Let's segue to another fun question. And y'all have already brought up a a few companies that you're excited about, but regardless of the the trend that it fits within or the subcategory, what is one or two companies that you became acquainted with most recently that you and the team also said yes and green-lighted the investment into those companies? Yeah, I can kick this off. So one company that I came across and that we ultimately ended up investing in, I think just a month ago, was called Minimum. So essentially, this is an app that is basically a consumer app, and it links to your bank account through Plaid. And then it automatically calculates your carbon footprint. So it's very personalized. And they calculate that carbon footprint from an initial survey, so like an initial five-question survey, and then through your transactions that they see through that link to your bank account. And then once you calculate um, that super personalized footprint, then it also allows you to automatically offset that footprint each week. So I think this was really interesting to me and to the team because it's a huge problem. So like the idea of a carbon footprint, even going vegan or not driving or really doing all the most sustainable living lifestyle habits and adopting those, even if you adopt all of those, that kind of only scratches the surface of becoming completely carbon neutral. So I feel like there's always going to be some element of still having to offset to become completely net zero in terms of your lifestyle and how you're living. So that was really interesting to us. I think another company that I brought up earlier was Gray Parrot. And that essentially, to reiterate, is a AI slash computer vision powered waste recognition software that monitor and audits and sorts waste at scale. I think what's really interesting um, about this is that can really automate and change the entire infrastructure of how we deal with waste. And it can fix a lot of the problems that we're seeing associated with manual labor. Currently, I think the global recycling rate is around like 10, 15%. And it's super low, partly because of that reliance on manual labor. And with computer vision-based software like that, we can actually ensure um, the purity of the waste that's recycled and also mitigate a lot of risk with identifying hazardous materials that might be present in landfill when people dispose of that in the regular recycling or trash can. So I think those those were two that came across that I was personally very interested in. I love it. And uh, question for, for y'all, because I'm sure you both have spent a lot of time thinking about it. With the, with the car, carbon offsetting, the tracking, what do y'all think will be the killer climate vanity metric? Like what will be the one thing that becomes the follower or the likes in offsetting? One train of thought is it could be the total amount of, of pounds offset. It could be a number of trees grown. But the, the, the problem with this is that it's inherently tied to money spent which makes like the metric kind of an un- unequitable or maybe less attainable KPI for a lot of people. So I'm wondering, have you all thought about what is going to be the vanity metric that becomes like kind of a, a signaling opportunity for everyday people? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I think so. Yeah, like I know we've been seeing a lot of traction with these carbon footprint offsetting startups and innovations in that space. And I would say, I think looking at the carbon emissions and like total tonnage of that is um, a promising metric to go off by. I think that's essentially measuring the total greenhouse gas emissions that a certain activity has. 
And we've seen that that is what ultimately contributes the most to global warming um, and climate change. If anything, I would say that that is, if we had to choose one, because I know there's a ton that we should go off of and such a complex issue, like this idea of sustainability, because that also includes like social impact and human rights and a lot of other considerations. But I think if we talk about like climate change and how our environment is changing, I would say like that carbon, the carbon footprint and emissions is one one general mm-hmm. statistic to consider. Nice. Yeah, and I, I agree with Amber. Greenhouse gas emissions is, I think, one of the biggest pieces, especially with the livestock industry. Livestock is one of the biggest contributors of methane gas, as well as food waste. I read a metric somewhere where it said food waste, if it was a country alone, it would be the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases. So this is definitely a huge problem. That is one factor to look at. I think another mm-hmm. one is with the food industry, are these you know, certain ingredients, are they sustainably sourced? One problem is the palm oil industry. There is problems with water usage, pollution, and of course, the waste generation side. So plastic waste, food waste, these are all things to look at when you're speaking about sustainability thousand percent and michelle how about yourself are there any startups that you became acquainted with recently that you got super excited about and ultimately the team said yes to supporting the team supporting the founders of the startups yeah definitely and i think i mentioned this company previously bond pet foods they're a really exciting company so Within this cellular agriculture space, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it or if you've seen any articles about it, it's basically creating meat in a lab without the actual animal. So what this entails is cultivating kind of a stem cell sample and generating kind of the muscle cells, the fat cells, the connective tissue, sometimes the blood vessels in the lab to create a steak or a piece of meat. The problem with this current method is the scale of it. So typically these methods need a lot of feedable vine serum, which is really expensive. And it's another question about the ethicality of getting the serum from uh, baby fetuses, uh, baby cow fetuses, versus the actual problem that we're trying to solve, which is slaughtering animals. So that's another Mm -hmm. issue in and of itself, but it's incredibly expensive, which makes it really hard for these companies to scale their product. And at the end of the day, customers, they want things that are better for the environment and better for their health, but they aren't willing to compromise much on the cost of it. Uh, So in order to reach the, the mass adoption for these products to hit the market, scale is a really large issue. And so what Bond Pets is doing is they've optimized a fermentation method, which is a very common method that's used currently in you know, the cheese industry or the wine industry to produce uh, the proteins of these real animals. So they are creating these real animal proteins via fermentation, which is inherently going to help them scale. And they're targeting first the pet industry because pets also require animal proteins for their health and they can't survive without it. This is a really interesting go-to-market strategy because pets don't have the same kind of sensory needs as humans do. You know, the taste, the mouthfeel, the experience of the food. I think uh, all humans are, even we say we're not picky when it comes to food, we're a little bit picky 
I think when it comes to experience of it, we don't want to eat something that we don't want to eat. By going to the pet food market, they can actually tackle those hurdles in a different way because their end consumer is mm-hmm. is not a human. It's an adorable puppy or, or cat. So I'm really excited about them. There are that a lot of so other companies in our portfolio. In our portfolio, I'm not picking favorites or anything, but there is another company that I absolutely love that's called Joywell Foods. So they are a protein sweetener company. So I don't know if you've heard of protein sweeteners before, but normal sweeteners like sugar are small molecules. And so they are uh, not healthy for us, as you probably know. I think there is like a very strange headline a while back, like sugar is a new cocaine or something insane like that. But I think it's generally agreed upon that sugar isn't necessarily the healthiest for us. And it's a wide contributor to a lot of health problems. So what Joy Joywell Foods is doing is they've taken a protein from the miraculin berry. This protein in and of itself is very, very sweet. It has a 10,000 times sweetness unit of normal sugar. The way that this protein was basically came about is these berries are found in uh, very dense forest areas. And so if it's under the canopy, there's no sunlight that can reach these berries. And so over the years, they've evolved to produce these sweet proteins to attract animals to eat their berries and spread the seed basically. So these proteins are optimized. So they are basically taste modifying. And so they can bind to your bitter taste cell, taste receptors on your tongue. And so once you coat your tongue with this miraculin protein, everything you eat afterwards is sweet. And I think the first time that I tried it, my mind was completely blown. So you can bite into a lemon and it tastes like a sweet lemonade. You can eat yogurt that hasn't been sweetened and it tastes like normal yogurt that's sweetened. Uh, You can drink straight cranberry juice and it tastes like sweet cranberry juice. It's absolutely insane. But they're a really exciting company as well. And I could talk for days about all sorts of companies that want to be mindful of time. That is so cool. I remember, I think it was like, it might have been an Israeli company. Are they called like Mont Dao? I I might be butchering that name, but high level the idea of like sugar technology i don't know if, i don't know what oh, bucket um, is classified it under, might have but, been uh, domatalk domatalk yes. yes yeah i know them too yeah they're they're really interesting they have uh, a different delivery method for sugar so it to Super my knowledge i think it's it's like the fiber and they coat it with sugar and actually when you eat a chocolate bar you don't actually taste all of the sugar that's in it because not all the sugar can uh, get to one of your sweetness receptors. And so with their method, they've actually created these clusters of sugars. And so when it hits your tongue, it actually tastes sweeter because the cluster is released. And so you can actually use, I think, like 40% less sugar in a chocolate bar and have it taste just as sweet. So super, super interesting tech. Wow. All right, y'all. I I was thinking about ending the conversation around this notion of the idea graveyard. One idea that you would love to work on if you had the time to do, but for now is just rotting away in your idea graveyard. This is typically how I end uh, the conversations, but I want to give y'all each the opportunity to 
A, explore that question, or B, give one request for startups, a need at, at your firm where there isn't enough companies tinkering or exploring or a problem area that feels highly underexploited. Whoever would like to kick off either A, idea rotting away in the idea graveyard, or B, your number one request for startup. Yeah, that's a great question. I love it. Yeah, so I, I think I'll go with the second request for startups. I think one one idea or one one area that I'm really hoping to see more in is like deep tech. So I think with with climate change and sustainability, it's really such a huge problem. And I think we need really transformative tech to really make a difference. I think especially here, it's different from traditional software based venture capital because you can't just build it. You need a lot of R&D going into these potential startups. It takes a lot of time to develop and it's also really capital intensive. So I think it's really interesting and what there's a lot of potential for is like the deep tech capital intensive and these like really game changing technologies that can really change the way in which we think about perhaps like carbon sequestration or even how we recycle and how we can perhaps degrade plastics a bit faster. Recently, I was doing some research into kind of plastic enzymes and degrading them. And I think there was there was some research done and people found a new plastic or a new enzyme that can degrade plastic easy easier. So I think there's a lot of opportunity in that space. And that would be my one request. <laughs> oh, that's super interesting. Michelle, how about you? Uh, that's a really challenging question. I think I have maybe a hundred different requests uh, that I can probably give. <laughs> I think we can always use more startups in every single sector across the food value chain. Like the ones that might come to mind is maybe AI or machine learning platforms within the ingredient space that can actually discover new types of proteins from maybe existing supply chains. So from fruits, vegetables, plants, proteins that we haven't actually found uh, the functionality for yet. I think there is a lot of proteins that are out there that we haven't discovered that can mimic the similar uh, functionalities or organoleptic characteristics of certain types of ingredients that can be more sustainable or even you know, have added functionalities to them. There can be startups in, I don't know, the livestock microbiome space looking for enzymes or types of probiotics that can actually decrease the methane production from cows. That's a really interesting space to explore. Upcycling ingredient companies, food packaging companies, of course, are always looking for great solutions there. Honestly, the list can go on and on. Uh, if, if, if there's any startups that they think have a use case that could be applicable for any of our partners, I would say just feel free to reach out to us. You can apply through our website. You can see the list of all of our corporate partners and the interest areas on our website as well. And so I would say we are a very vast platform. We have 18 industry focus areas. We have 39 global locations around the world. There's a space for everybody at Plug and Play. So. I don't think oh, I really yeah. answered your question, um, but... No, that was great. That was great. Amber, Michelle, I'd love to roll the red carpet. Are there any final call to actions, hiring needs, anything that y'all want to leave with our listener 
listeners, the floor is yours. Yeah, definitely. So go ahead, Michelle. (laughs) Go for it. Okay. Yeah. So I would say at Plug and Play, like we're really an ecosystem. We do a lot of different things. So definitely if you're a founder, potential founder, corporation, university, or just generally interested in looking to move into sustainability, connect with us, follow us on LinkedIn. We host a lot of events and we're also hiring all across the world. On our sustainability vertical, we recently expanded to three other locations in South America, China, and Africa. So we're really expanding a lot and would love to connect Yeah, and basically echoing what Amber said, if you're a startup, please come reach out to us if you're looking for any business development opportunities or strategic partnerships. If you're a corporate and you're looking to have more involvement in innovation initiatives, that's something that we can help out with as well. And we're always hiring, like Amber said, we have so many locations around the world, whether it be a a ventures position, that is what me and Amber do, that's startup facing, or if it's even corporate development or business development, program management, all these types of things, please feel, feel free to reach out if there's any interest at all. Hell yeah. Amber, Michelle, y'all are awesome. Thank you both for coming on the show, educating me. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much much for having having us. us. Hey there, you made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rockstar founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at peteralevin or email us, hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again and look forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.